sense to me, actually, was when Tara is, who is being held hostage and being raped by Franklin, right? Right. Um, finally managed to escape Franklin. She's in a white nightgown. And she is literally running across a, fl- a plantation with, with, with rabid dogs at her heels. Like, it is so, so, so slave era reminiscent. I want to vomit in my mouth. Hello, everyone. This is Alex. And this is M. Welcome to the latest episode of The Good, The Bad, The Basic. This is the podcast for TV lovers, movie buffs, and binge watchers of all ages. On this podcast, we'll be discussing what we loved, what we hated, and what's just a bit problematic about the TV and movies that we're addicted to, and do a bit of rewriting where necessary. For much more exclusive content, Become a show producer on Patreon and get access to after-the-episode outtakes, curated playlists, movie reviews, music video retrospectives, and so much more. Join the family at patreon.com forward slash goodbadbasic. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the first three seasons of the hit HBO fantasy drama, True Blood. This groundbreaking series was adapted from the Southern Vampire Mysteries best-selling novels from Charlene Harris, which incorporated not just vampires and werewolves, but also shapeshifters, fairies, and demons. So how did this series manage to juggle such a complex universe and remain a staple of premium network television for six years? Stay tuned. everyone um here's some information about true blood um it's a fantasy horror and drama created by alan ball and it's based on the southern vampire mysteries which was retro named the true blood series by charlaine harris and the series aired from september 7th 2008 until august 24th 2014 on hbo for seven seasons and a total of 80 episodes the series stars Anna Paquin as Sookie Stackhouse, Stephen Moyer as Bill Compton, Sookie's initial love interest, Sam Trammell as Sam Merlot, Sookie's boss and owner of the restaurant and bar Merlot's, Ryan Quanton as Jason Stackhouse, Sookie's brother, Rutina Wesley as Tara Thornton, Sookie's best friend, Chris Bauer as Andy Belfleur, um, the police detective um, who later becomes sheriff in season three. Nelson Ellis as Lafayette Reynolds, Tara's cousin and head cook at Merlot's. Alexander Skarsgård as Eric Northman, uh, the vampire sheriff of Area 5 of Louisiana, which is an area that includes the town that we are set in, Bonton. He's over a thousand years old and he is a former Viking prince. Kristen Bauer Van Stratton as Pamela um, Swinford de Beaufort, a.k.a. Uh, Pam, who is Eric's only progeny and his right-hand woman. Todd Lowe as Terry Belfleur, an Iraqi veteran with severe PTSD, um, and Andy's cousin. Later, he becomes Arlene's husband and another cook at Merlot's. Carrie Preston as Arlene Fowler, a.k.a. Arlene Fowler 
Belfleur, Sookie's friend and co-worker and later Terry's wife, Jim Perrick as Hoyt Fortenberry, uh, Jason's best friend and co-worker, Adina Porter as Letty Mae Thornton, Tara's mom, uh, Deborah Ann Wall as Jessica Hamby, Bill's only progeny, and Hoyt's first love and eventual wife, Joe uh, Maganiello as Alcide Hevro, he's a werewolf, and Sookie's secondary love interest. Michael McMillian as Reverend Steve Newland. Uh, he is the leader of the Fellowship of the Sun. Anna Camp as Sarah Newland, Reverend Newland's wife. William Sanderson as Bud Dearborn, the initial town sheriff when the series opens. And Lois Smith as Adele Stackhouse, Sookie and Jason's grandmother. These are our major players in a show overflowing <laughs> with supporting and recurring characters. So, let's jump in. Right. Um, so, True Blood. True Blood is, like you said, it's a it's a staple of HBO. When True Blood came out, it was it was a huge hit, like um, big big hit. Endless sort of talk shows. It was definitely like water cooler, like you know TV. It was must see TV. I still remember that you know, infamous um, Rolling Stone cover with Anna Paquin and Alexander Skarsgård and Stephen Moyer. Uh, If you guys uh, haven't seen that and like, you should Google that and look it up. Um, Just, just a big, big television hit. Right. Right. I mean, I remember seeing the first trailer for True Blood And it had a character named Nan Flanagan. I should look up the actress. Um, I should have put her here, actually. Nan Flanagan is a recurring character. Um, But she is, like, head of, like, the vampire-human liaison PR type situation. And the trailer had her... Um, and they did this whole thing of coming out of the coffin, which was obviously a play of coming out of the closet. And it seemed so real. The way True Blood was framed and packaged before the first episode even aired had people waiting with bated breath. We were really curious about where the show was going to go and what it was going to do. Yeah, I think that initial that initial marketing campaign was really strong. It broke some actors, but uh, it broke a lot of actors who, who were new on the show and like maybe were relatively unknown. I remember it revived Anna Paquin's star. Like, it was... Like it became, she became an it girl again after it had debuted. So, and had put like um, a lot of people on the map. And and like I said, it was just sort of, it was it was really ubiquitous in pop culture at the time. Like you couldn't get away from it. Prior to watching the series, now everybody who was on this show was had acting experience prior to True Blood. But were they a star? Only Anna Paquin. And she was like sort of like an indie darling. She was best known for her role. Um, she, I think she won an Academy Award for this when she was nine in The Piano and a string of really, really great critically acclaimed indie films. Um, she'd never done um, television and she'd never done anything like this before. We'd seen Stephen Moyer. Prior to this, Alexander Skarsgård was best known for playing one of Zoolander's roommates who died in the gasoline fight accident in the movie Zoolander. All these people had been seen before, but um, they weren't really on like that until True Blood, right? Right. 
And I will say, like, to give it credit, like, uh, in regards to Alexander Skarsgård and, and really just the Skarsgård family in general, because um, that, like, that that entire family, they're all actors. Like, they're more famous in their home country of Sweden. Like, they're... And that's, I think, prior to True Blood, he, like, he just... He doesn't doing a lot of American cinema. He just... His primary his primary form of income is all um, stuff in Sweden and in, in film and Swedish film. Right, right, right. Yeah, his his family is like Gustav, Bill, and Walter Skarsgård. Not to, he's not he's not related to the Skarsgård that's married to Maggie Gyllenhaal. In case anyone was wondering, uh, we have a lot of actors from other countries like Ryan Quanten, the Australian actor who plays Jason Stackhouse, um, for instance. He's he's pretty well known in Australia as well, right? But prior to True Blood, the only American television he'd done was the series Summerland, um, which Lori Loughlin was the star of that show, and Jesse McCartney was on that show. OGs, oh, if you remember that show that put <laughs> Jesse McCartney on television and put Hayden P- Panettiere on, um, not Hayden Panettiere, excuse me, um, Kay Panabaker. Um, you remember Summerland? Please leave a like and a comment because I feel like no one remembers that show. <laughs> He'd done that series prior to True Blood, and that was like his that those are his only, I think, American television credits. But what I will say about this show is even though the cast is mostly people that had done a lot of television but didn't really have like a big star or people we'd never seen before because they'd done very very small projects the cast was strong i think every single character on true blood was so well cast and that is hard to do when you have so many people on a show yeah i i think that is a saving grace of this show is that when the writing falls apart which is very quickly you do have a lot of strong well I mean, just strong actors in general to to carry parts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes I, well, not sometimes, a lot of the time, the actors have to pick up where the writing falters because the show can be um, very campy and then, like, it just devolves into straight goofy um, very quickly. Um, but let's get into season one. Season one was 12 episodes, and man, did they do what they had to do. This show... Prior, I think this was one of the first shows where we had, what I watched anyway, that had such a sh- such short seasons. And this show really made me believe in those brief but heavy seasons, as opposed to really, really long ones. This was the season where we met the initial core cast and everyone who would be a key player in the mystery of season one. In season one, we meet Suki. We learn that she can read minds. She can read the minds of everyone around her. That's what makes the Bill character initially really interesting to her is that she cannot read his thoughts. We meet her coworker, um, Arlene. We find out that another coworker, Maudette, has been recently killed. And her death, as well as the death of other young women around Bonton becomes the mystery of season one, trying to find out who this killer is. We learn that her boss, Sam, is a shifter. Later in the season where we meet Reverend Steve Newland and his wife, Sarah. Um, but the bigger, the big issue of season one is not just the mystery of who this killer is, but the burgeoning relationship between Suki and this vampire, Bill, and the way that her friends and family and the townsfolk at large react to her dating a vampire. Right. It's more about setting up this world, setting up the world of the show. So 
you know, vampires are real. They are quote unquote, this is the dialogue of the show um, or the verbiage of the show. They are coming out of the coffin. What does it mean that vampires exist? And what does that mean for humans and their day-to-day lives? And uh, it's, uh, it's shaky. So, it's, I mean, it's so shaky to me, honestly, rewatching that first season, particularly because obviously coming out of the coffin, you know, that sounds a lot like coming out of the closet. And um, so right away, the show is setting us up to think about or to make these connections uh, of two vampires being like an oppressed minority. And shout out to Sarah Sentry uh, from Bitches on Comics who illuminated something that I hadn't thought about prior, or that I not hadn't thought about, but I just didn't know prior about how gay people or queer people sort of being equated to vampires is um, like a joke. Like it was, it's it started off as like something that uh, bigots would say and then it was sort of like reclaimed by the queer community and like now it's sort of like a joke but there is like that added texture there which further complicates this idea this idea of like the vampire sort of being this oppressed minority falls apart very quickly it falls apart extremely quickly once you start digging into it honestly like you shouldn't even think about it that hard because like when you start to it doesn't it doesn't make sense because of all of the the weird power dynamics that that go on, I think, between the vampires and the humans. And then also just, you know, uh, the vampires kind of suck. Um, right. You can't be an oppressed minority when you're a literal predator. You're just a minority. <laughs> um. Right. Um, <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, which is, yeah, it's, so it's fuzzy. And that's why this starts to fall away. So it also falls away when when we meet Bill and then he like and then the show goes on and on about how he like fought in the Confederacy and like they like romanticize it. (laughs) So much romanticization. Like, oh, Vampire Bill, you're a war hero that got turned into a vampire. Poor Vampire Bill. Bill, it's like, um, and it doesn't stop. Obviously, like sort of queer narrative is happening. Then they like make the jump even further to then add race into it. Um, oh, God. Because <laughs> in season two, uh, like, which we'll get to in a second, but Steve Newlin is like, um, Suki is a race traitor to her race, the human race. And I was just like, oh, we could have not. Like, we could have just I mean, kept that out. In the, in the writer's defense, that is a better use of the word, of the term race. Um, um, humans versus vampire, but clearly they're co-opting a lot of really loaded um, language, right? Right. Now, I didn't know about this, you know, this uh, slur or this derogatory history of queer people being equated to vampires, but I did think that it was um, interesting, interesting, quote unquote, as I was watching the show on the initial watch that all the time, you know, bigots will make um, statements about how gay people are trying to convert and turn everybody, right? And then you have mm. these vampires that literally turn and convert people to vampir- vampirism. It's a false equivalency any way you look at it. They're not oppressed, okay? And um, they are not victims of the system the way that queer people are, period. Right. 
period. And it, I mean, and I had to really sit with myself and I was like, okay, like, is there something I'm not seeing? Like, you know, because I was like, oh, but I was like, it is really, it, it would be really terrifying. Like if somebody was stronger than you, faster than you could like kill you at any moment, seem to have like a, like a hostility, like it, it's just there, the power dynamics between the humans and the vampires just aren't equal in any sort of real way. And the show sort of tries to like all lives matter it. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> like it tries to all lives matter. The sort of like, dy- like the power dynamics between them. And I'm like, you can't though, because if I can't have any sort of real, like way to um, defend myself, like then clearly there's something here that that's not computing. Anyway, it's a uh, it's a lot. The show opens up from that way from the very first episode, right? You it starts off and it continues for for the bulk of the series. I want to say eighty percent of every season is portrayed this way with the humans being the oppressor to the vampires. In that opening episode, in that series premiere, Suki reads the minds of a couple that who plan to abduct and kidnap and kill and drain Bill for his blood because vampire blood is like a precious commodity. It gives you, for a limited uh, period of time, heightened senses and heightened strength, and it is something that is being sold on the black market. So she warns him that this couple, the Rattrays, are planning on um, doing this to him. And so it already, like from the beginning, the series is set up as like, humans are are bad, humans are bigots, and conveniently forgets the fact that every single vampire we see on this show, especially the, the you know, Bill and his maker and the Erics and the Pams, who are hundreds of, in some cases, thousands of years old, have literally survived by killing humans. Right. And not even killing humans of like, yeah. And, and yeah. And that, and even that like killing humans. So it's not like they catch feed and release. Right. Right. Very few do that. Very few do that. They are just outright murdering people and not even just for food. Some it's a a lot of it is for pleasure. Right. Right. That's the other dynamic, too. So there's like a sadomasochistic element of vampire feeding where um, they they enjoy feeding. It's not just something that you have to do, like the, the kind of twilight vampires. It's something that they really, really enjoy on a, a cerebral sexual level. And the humans there are a uh, you know, subset of humans who enjoy being fed on. And so they have that lo- layer of masochism, right? And it often is incredibly sexual. Um, even on the rare occasion where a vampire feeds their blood to a human in order to help them or heal them, um, that comes with consequences because feeding off of a vampire um, creates a, a, a short-term side effect of you having sexual dreams about them, right? Right. Like, because once you... Yeah, once you drank their blood, it's like you can't. And once they fed, it's like a whole thing, right? Like so, the the power dynamics, like like you said, is it's very 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 skewed. You're not again. You cannot be oppressed an oppressed minority when you are faster, stronger, older, deadlier. The only advantage that humans have over these vampires is the fact that they can't come out in the daylight. Like these are not 
you know, TVD vampires with daylight rings. Right. And, um, and even then, that is, and even then we, I mean, and we'll cover that in the, the second half that gets turned on its head a bit. Something else is like there, the rules are so nebulous. Once again, thinking about this power, this weird power dynamic, because so the vampires have their own sort of structure uh, with regards to power and uh, sort of self-policing and living, right? And we, throughout the first season, were sort of set up with this. So we learn about the fact of, like, their sheriffs, right? Um, right. The hierarchy is something of, like, sheriffs. Uh, then, you know, we meet, and then there are, like, kings and queens, but, like, everybody sort of has their own area, and it's all divided up into areas so right and there is like a checks and balances system but it's more about keeping the order to avoid like all-out human rebellion and less about actually coexisting peacefully with the humans right like you're allowed to do certain shit as long as you're not too overt you you don't draw too much attention to yourself so then the show then introduces vampires right to sort of counteract these that or that are not counteract the scary vampires but clearly in the narrative it's meant to counteract them lafayette who is tara's cousin played by nelson ellis is a local drug dealer and he deals v right he got your meth he got your pot he got your v (laughs) he's got everything (laughs) and the source and the and the source supply from his v is a vampire who is um, a a lonely, he's a lonely gay vampire who is actually Lafayette's client, right? Because um, Lafayette also uh, performs sex work. Right. And Lafayette has sex with this vampire in exchange for him giving him some of his V. And when we meet uh, this this Lafayette's client, I'm, his name is escaping me now, we see that he's just like, he's doing the same thing with eternity that he was doing with his human life. Like, he's, it's nothing has changed. He, he didn't get, like, some crazy hot body overnight. Like, he's still living by himself. He doesn't have a partner that he's with. He's just sort of existing right this character is so interesting to me his name escapes me too but it it should go it it should be noted it's because it's very important to the narrative that he's not just older and gay but like he's also um you know he's a little heavy and he's not that attractive this is really important to why he has this relationship with lafayette in the first place right because if he's one of those hot vampires he wouldn't. He they, he could just snap his fingers, and there'd be people lining up to fuck him. <laughs> right, or you know, not even that. It's like because you know there are a lot of fat people out here who are getting it. Who like you know they step out and like they're bad, bad. Like you know, right. But he's and- not cute either, which matters. <laughs> like, and he's he's so he's older. He's not cute, and he's a little heavy. Plus, he's like super introverted and shy. That's not a good combo. For a vampire. He's like literally the opposite of the Eric Northman model. So they have this sort of symbiotic relationship. But when Eric finds out about the symbiotic relationship, the the response to, I mean, okay, so let me, because I'm sort of skipping. So they have this symbiotic relationship. 
Jason, who is Sookie's brother, is sleeping with this, like, crunchy granola, like, super ultra-privileged Becky. Her name is Amy. (laughs) Yeah, shout out to Lizzie Kaplan. I loved her in that role. Amy, and Amy and Jason, like, are doing, like, V together. And basically, Amy starts to get, like, I mean, she starts to get those heroin crackhead sweats and shakes. Spoiler um, alert, V is addictive. <laughs> it's yes, very addictive. It's highly addictive. She starts to really start starts to come undone. So they figure out that this that lot like that uh, Lafayette's vampire client, uh figure they figure out where he lives and they go there and then it's interesting, it's funny to watch it because and it's a really strong piece of writing because you can see how like they could have accomplished exactly what they wanted without killing uh, the the client, like the vampire guy. But because mm-hmm. they're in that, but but woof, addiction, yo, addiction be making you stupid. Like, right? Like if you hadn't killed him, you understand that he could have been a constant supply. Right? Because the fact of it is, like, Jason is exactly his type, right? Mm-hmm. Jason could have just gone in there and, like, taken off his clothes and, like, shook some ass. And, like, I'm sure he would have been like, please, here, take some of my blood. (laughs) Right. It's also worth noting that this guy, he doesn't just want sex. He wants an emotional connection. Like, after he and Lafayette hook up, he always asks, like, we're friends, right? Like, it's not just about the V. He really wants companionship. And I'm sure if Jason came over there looking all hot with his clothes on and just gave this man some conversation, he could have still got some V. <laughs> Listen, um, but Amy, you know, throws a thing of silver over his head and they kidnap him, <laughs> which is dumb. They kidnap him, hold him hostage, get the V, and then they kill him. Um and oh, uh, but really quickly, the vampire's name is Eddie Gaither, and it's played by the actor Stephen Root. He's a really popular voice and TV actor. If you don't might not know his name, but if you see his face, you'll know. Um, he also he played the voice of Buck Strickland on King of the Hill as well. For those who watch that show, and that whole storyline is meant to demonstrate that, like, oh well, see, like humans are bad too. Which, like, of course, here was Eddie who like literally minded his business. And didn't do anything, like, terrible. And he was murdered. Yeah, humans are bad. But, like, it's also, like, we need to take into account in their particular circumstance, like, addict behavior. <laughs> addict behavior is not exclusive to um, at, to vampires insofar as how casualties work, right? People who are addicted, like, kill, steal from um, human beings all the time. Like right. that's just addict behavior. <laughs> it's not okay. Yeah, that's true. So it's not it's not specific to to vampirism or, or vampires. It's just like an addict is an addict does what what an addict does. But um, but and that's it's an interesting story. But so when all that happens, La, like Lafayette, it's um Lafayette is then kidnapped by Eric and Eric's goons or whatever, and he is like horrifically tortured like her it's yeah. it's and this is throughout the the course of season one he's really horrifically horrifically tortured i mean lafayette and the worst part is that lafayette originally complies with eric and pam and their questions and 
Lafayette comes clean about all of it. He's like, it was a mutual relationship. I don't know who killed him, but I think it was Jason Stackhouse. Mm-hmm. Right? Which is pretty spot on. Jason didn't actually kill Eddie, but he, I mean, semantics. Um, yeah, he. Par- I mean, he didn't stop it. He, he definitely participated in the kidnapping. Kidnapping. So guilty too, fam. Right. And, you know... And Eric doesn't go after Jason for the sole reason that, like, he he's he wants Sookie. So then Eric's response is not to let Lafayette go, but to keep him locked up and continue to torture him for right. reasons. And Lafayette then has to attempt to escape by another prisoner. Uh, one of the, basically one of the guys who tried to light that, um did that uh, burn the house down, burn that nest down earlier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one one of those guys, Eric, like, murders him in front of Lafayette. And then Lafayette then has to, I mean, and it is gruesome. It's like the thing of horror. Lafayette has to uh, take his dismembered knee because he remembers that he got a knee replacement. And he goes into his like knee cavity and pulls out the knee replacement, the metal knee replacement and breaks it away from the bone, the cartilage, and then breaks his chains with it. It's gruesome. It's so horribly gruesome. And then when you put on top of it, the racial dynamics of the South, I mean, it's, it's worse. So like, once again, this idea, this thing of like, oh, the vampires are the real oppressed minorities in the world of this show. Once again, this is falling apart. Right. And we should also throw in the fact that Lafayette isn't just performing sex work and being gay for pay. He's actually a gay black man in the South. Right. Right. Um, And again, we saw this with the season opener as well. This is something that he is constantly dealing with. If it's not racists, it's homophobes. It's always one or the other with him. Um, and, you know, um, somebody made a comment um, that they wouldn't eat his food, the food that he cooked at Merlot's because um, it had AIDS in it. They called it an AIDS burger, right? Right. Um, and that that was a whole thing where Lafayette is constantly on the defensive with the racists, with the homophobes, and now with the vampires. Dude really can't catch a break. But vampires are oppressed? Okay. Right. It's <laughs> so it, it's just like it's not I get it's one of those things where it's just clear like white writers thought about this thing, but then they didn't really think about the thing. You know what I mean? Like they didn't okay. take into account that they're you know, they're so caught up in like whatever point they're trying to make about queerness or like when I say queerness, I mean specifically in a white cis context, right? but not thinking about all the intersections of, of queerness. Like, so like queer black people, queer trans people, queer, um, and all, and how that all plays out. It just falls apart. So the mystery is that there's a killer going around killing young women and Sam, who's a shifter goes to investigate his employee, Ma Dad's trailer when she is murdered. She's like the first murder in the season open. And eventually he strings together the fact that all these young women had in common was that they were um, all young and they were either fucking vampires or they were doing V, right? So there's that like vampire connection there. 
And, you know, um, the season wraps, we eventually find out who the killer is and that he has this whole vendetta against vampires, you know, going way, 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 way back. And one of the other areas that the writers drop the ball is that um, he just hates vampires. Vampires haven't actually done anything to him. I think his sister ran off with a vampire or something, right? But they haven't actually harmed him in any way. He just doesn't respect women who fuck vampires on some very insolite behavior. That's the way the season wraps up when Suki finally reads this man's mind and realizes for the first time, because Suki's not the smartest cookie in the jar, and we're going to talk about that later, that the voice in his head does not match the voice coming out of his mouth. And that maybe <gasps> he's faking that accent. Right. And right. And and it's, and the killer is Arlene's boyfriend or fiance. fiance. Yeah. Fiance. Dude was about to be Arlene's third husband and he's a whole serial killer, Renee. And like you said, he's killing vampires just to do it. And once again, here it's like, that's that connection that they're clearly trying to make of like vampires are like, queer and black like that's the metaphor but it's like huh like (laughs) right it just it falls very very flat and i feel like too and i will discuss this in further seasons a lot of times most of the times the humans are right but the way that they communicate their feelings is is like written in very bigot language right right like the fear of vampires is a legitimate fear. And we can we can talk about this some more in season two when the Jessica character comes into play about why so many humans are right to fear these vampires and the repercussions of just living in proximity with them because they're not just doing PR to sort of coexist with us or at least to stay underneath the human radar. They have their own little wars and tribes and factions and politics, right? And humans are often a casualty of those, that drama and those issues. Exactly. Which, I mean, leads us into how the season ends, how first season ends, right? So Bill earlier in the season had taken Sookie to Fangtasia, which is the bar that is owned by Eric Northman, the sheriff of their area. And when Sookie's at Fantasia, they're trying to figure out who stole money. Sookie's there to read Ginger's mind because somebody has stolen money from Eric. By reading Ginger's mind, Sookie, they figure out that it's the bartender at Fantasia, who, by the way, is the only indigenous character on the show. Poor Long Shadow. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Long Shadow. And once they find out it's Long Shadow, Bill intervenes and murders Long Shadow when right. he's about to feed or kill Sookie. So in order for Bill to make up for that death, he is ordered by the magister, the magistrate of that area. Magistrate is somebody who's higher than a sheriff. Um, so Eric cannot intervene. Uh, the magistrate orders Bill to make a new vampire to replace Long Shadow. So mm-hmm. this, the vampire, not the vampire, but the, so then we meet Jessica. They, this is a girl that they have, that vampires have kidnapped from her home. Have It's not like she ran away, but she's at a party with her friend. They kidnap this girl. They bring her, they present her to Bill and he um, 
it is his duty to turn her. And it is like one of the most horrifying scenes of the first season. Um, there are like a lot of horrifying scenes of the first season. This is just, I guess, the last one um, that that provides our season finale. She is like crying. Mm-hmm. Uh, she does not want to be turned. This is not a consensual thing where like other vampires, you know, like it's their partner or whatever and they consent to being turned. She is terrified. She's like, I don't want to die. I mean, it's, it's horrifying, um, but he does it. Uh, and let, let's talk about the hypocrisy of that situation on the vampires end too. Y'all want to keep the peace. You had this vampire, Long Shadow, who was trying to kill a human being because she exposed him as a thief. And Bill kills Long Shadow in defense and he's being punished for that? Right, because it's like she he he defended a human ultimately. Right. And that's so a clearly, no matter what they say on TV and then those nice little talking points, they don't care about coexisting. Again, they see themselves as superior and it shows consistently. We can talk more about Jessica um, in season two um, because I think like season one ends on that cliffhanger of you have to change this girl. And like then he she he has to uh, uh, um, help her become accustomed to vampirism in season two. Right. Um, but what do we think of season one? Is it good, bad or basic? Season one, if you put aside this weird coming out of the, co- like all these weird, I think deeper things that they're trying to do with the narrative that don't work. Um, if you just sort of take it as it is, uh, and you don't think too hard about this coming out of the coffin, um, analogy metaphor that they're trying to construct. Season one is a good, it's a solid good. I, I'm having fun. Like it's, it's kind of campy, but that's part of its charm. I like all these characters are very clear to me. I like the world. Yeah, I agree. It's good. Um, it left a lot to be desired. Um, it was very, very clear throughout season one that a white woman had written this. Hey, Charlene. <laughs> um, uh, and um, that were there were white writers in the TV adaptation writers room. But it is what it is. All flaws aside, it was still very good. So season two gives us another 12 episodes. And we dig a little bit further into the Jessica character. She was this, she was raised in a very religious household. She was homeschooled. She was kept under locked and key. She had snuck out to either a concert or a party for the very first time in her life right? To try to experience being a teenage girl. She's 17 years old and has never really um, had any autonomy before. And in the first time she tries to claim some autonomy, she's kidnapped by these vampires over some shit that has nothing to do with her. And um, she is turned by Bill. Now the show tries to soften this blow by getting in deeper into Jessica's backstory and how abusive her parents, particularly her father was, and trying to reframe her vampirism, even though it wasn't her choice whatsoever, as something that has liberated her. But Bill didn't know that and neither did any of these other vampires going in. Right. And ultimately she doesn't consent. So it doesn't really matter. Like, you know what I mean? There is this, 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 all of this. <laughs> so, um, you know, she could have just, she, it's like, right. Particularly that liberation idea. It's like, she could have been like every other sort of religious kid and, you know, moved to New Orleans, right. Which is like probably the biggest, the big, uh, city in, in Louisiana or, you know, Atlanta or 
Baton you know, Rouge. <laughs> Baton Rouge, or if she really wanted to like never see those people ever again, New York City, and been liberated and found herself in that way. I mean, I feel like that is the basis for like 20 billion television shows and movies that we've seen. Right. Um, and it's also worth noting, I cannot stress this enough, Jessica is 17 years old. She is a literal child in every sense of the word. She has no life experience. She has never had a relationship. She's been homeschooled under lock and key. She's never even had a real a real friend group other outside of her sisters. And she is a minor, even by human standards. I'm not on the vampire side. I'm just not there. Like, I want to be there, but, like, I can't get there. Um, like, I get why Bill turned her, but, again, they had no business kidnapping this child. Child. And um, forcing him to to giving him this choice of, you know, Suki or Jessica. He didn't want to turn Jessica, and Jessica didn't want to be turned. And there is no sexual romantic relationship between Jessica and Bill. There never has been and there never will be for the duration of the series, which is something I respect. Season two just follows, I think, the the Buffy pat- pattern in terms of, like, there's a singular antagonist for the course of the, the seasons. And season two, we're introduced to Mary Ann, who is our antagonist. So at the end of season one, Tara uh, got publicly drunk just dealing with her life, which sucks. And she was put in a drunk tank and she is bailed out by a new character or our mysterious uh, Marianne. And she goes to stay with her to sort of get her mind right. And Marianne initially seems, at least initially seems like she is, is of the good, but we quickly learn that she is of the very, very bad. I just want to go on record and say, I never trusted that bitch. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just want to put that out there. So, yeah, these are the two cliffhangers um, for, you know, non-Suki characters that happens. Marianne sets her sights on Tara, and Jason is scooped up by the Fellowship of the Sun, right? Because initially when Amy is killed, she's killed while he's in the bed with her. They're both so high off V that they don't know when someone else comes into the room and kills her. So he wakes up with her body. Um, he's arrested for her murder and he assumes that he was just so high off the V that he killed her and has no memory of it, right? That he blacked out. So he pleads guilty to this murder. And then when it's understood that Renee is actually the killer, he's released, but the Fellowship of the Sun had brought him a pamphlet when he was um, in holding. And he decides to recommit his life to God and to a higher purpose, right? So he right. goes and what's essentially this cult at the end of season I, one. I love that you said cult because I, I'm like, Jason goes to cult camp in my notes. <laughs> it literally is cult camp. Like it's a cult for adults. Like, I'm not going to lie. This is a really good cult. Cause usually cults are lacking in money or they're lacking organization or they're lacking in just regular structure. Right. But this is a really cool cult. If you're going to join a cult, this is a very, very attractive looking one to join. Listen, and it works out for Jason. Jason's such a great character. And shout out to Ryan Quentin, who just plays him so beautifully. Jason, uh, <laughs> Jason's so goofy. Jason doesn't really have a lot going on upstairs, but he has a lot of heart. Jason approaches everything that he does in life with not much upstairs, but but a lot of heart. And cult camp is no different. It's interesting. It's it's clearly like an extremist group, right? Once again, the show is right. trying to give me some sort of like I think KKK lightness right. in the, the Fellowship of the Sun 
of which there were I'm a lot like, of jihadist parallels too. <laughs> right. There's lots of stuff that they're trying to do. They're clearly an extremist group, but like Jason's just sort of there to to find purpose because when Amy dies, he's really gutted because I think he really loved Amy. He did. He, he did. did. So Jason is supposed to be like the dumb sibling, right? But let's be, make one thing very clear. Unlike his sister, Jason can't read minds. But Jason is, he's pretty good at once he realizes what's going on in a situation, taking appropriate action. Sookie can read minds and she's a waitress who can't even get to work on time. No shade to waitresses. I'm just saying if you can read minds, you shouldn't even be having to work, sis. <laughs> um so clearly he's not the dumb sibling <laughs> um, but uh he goes to cult camp learns how to be a little christian jihadist um and uh he's completely indoctrinated and it all would have been well and dandy except that reverend newland and his wife are independently now not together trying to fuck jason that's one of the best turns by the way (laughs) yeah so they're both trying to get a piece she's like he's he's in the closet um which you can't help but but feel like this fuels his hatred for the vampires coming out of the coffin i feel anyway Um, oh yeah i definitely think that's part of the undercurrent uh and the cleverness of the of that that part right and then uh Obviously, this is why he can't satisfy his wife. And they're all trying to get all up on Jason's dick. Um, The other issue with this season as well is that um, Eric's maker, Godric, who's 2,000 years old, as opposed to Eric's (laughs) 1,000, has gone missing. And they're trying to find him. And he believes that the Fellowship of the Sun have kidnapped him. He believes correctly, by the way, that they have kidnapped him. Now, the little backstory on Eric and Godric's relationship... Eric is not a good person, but when Eric is loyal to you, that loyalty is like for life, period. He'll do period. anything for um, Godric became his maker when he was fighting one of those Viking wars. Um, the, the Viking mythology and folklore culture was that to go to Valhalla, which is Viking heaven, you have to die on the battlefield. Dying in bed at home or from illness was not a warrior's death. So when Godric comes to a dying Eric um, and tells him, follow me, I can make you immortal, I can save you from this death, of course he was going to say yes, right? And Godric showed him a new life and a new way. And he was eternally grateful to that. I mean, he still refers to this man as his father, even though he had parents in a very good relationship with them, right? He had, like, Viking parents. Um, So... He's still trying to find Godric because even though they haven't spoken in a couple centuries at this point, he still has a lot of love for him. Later in the series, we find out that he still is trying to avenge the death of his human parents, right? Like, Eric's loyalty runs very, very deep, and you don't want to fuck with him and the people that he cares about. With the Godric uh, plot, we really get to see uh, the humanity in Eric, which was definitely needed. Because at this point, I don't know, I mean, beyond Alexander Skarsgård just being really, really good looking, um, I'm not feeling a, especially on this rewatch, I'm not really feeling it for Eric. Like, he sucks so hard. Like, 
Erica's so, a terrible fucking person. Terrible person. Really horrible. So basically what happens is that Godric, Godric, yes, was kidnapped by the Fellowship of the Sons. He stayed there willingly. He didn't murder anybody. Godric is also the second vampire that I think the show tries to use to be like, see, the vampires are not that bad, you guys. Um, right. They're all ultimately rescued by Jason, of all people. A combo between uh, Sookie and Jason and, and and Bill. When everyone is saved and they go back to Godric's home, Godric decides um, that he wants to end his life, that he's ready to be done with living. And part of it is that like he just feels like he's finished with life because uh, he's lived lived it for so long. <laughs> if you ain't learned what you were trying to learn in 2000 years, you clearly wasn't about that life. <laughs> right. <laughs> but one of the things he says as he's sort of departing is that like, he's also just grown va- like weary with vampirism because he's like in 2000 years, we're the same. He's like, we're still predatory, but like we haven't evolved as a species uh, or like as a, as a whatever we are. He's like, we're more brutal, we're more violent, we're not getting any better. So, like, what is the point of this? Like, why am I still here? Right. And the show actually does touch upon this back in season one, where the about the nesting vampires. And they make it clear that as as superior as vampires feel to humans, they need to live in human community because when vampires nest together, they become more savage and more brutal and more feral, right? Mm-hmm. They need to be around people, even if they don't have like relationships with people, like they just need to be in human communities in order to remain, to retain their humanity. Now, the Godric character as well, um, played by Alan Hyde, is a really interesting character because when we meet him, when he turns Eric, he's already a thousand years old and like still like on some bullshit, on some ridiculousness. Right. He's just trying to turn people, trying to feast on people and just live his best life. And the only reason he tried to turn Eric as opposed to feeding on him was because Eric was strong. Eric did not beg for his life or like shrink back in terror from him, right? So he's like, oh, okay, you have you have some metal in your spine. I think I'm going to turn you. Um, right. Do you want to like, turn? Do you want to be one of us? Right. He's um, like, oh, you're out here kind of doing something. Right, right. So he saw some strength in him, some strength of character, and was like, okay, I'm going to turn you. And Godric, um, you know, he's he's probably the, I know he he's supposed to be like the evolved vampire, but he actually calls out all of these other vampires who are hundreds of years old themselves, and how they have not used this opportunity to grow into better people, right? He actually calls out Bill's maker, Lorena, for this very thing. He's like, I can tell you're really, really old. And Lorena is somewhere between like 800 and maybe 1200 years old. We're really not sure about that, but she's very fucking old and she's just out here just trying to be cruel to people and still trying to manipulate Bill back into her life. Right. The Lorena plot is uh, an interesting one. The Lorena plot is just high camp, Um, but Lorena is Bill's maker and, and she basically is still mad about she's just still feels some type of way that he had the audacity to leave her. It's been right. a couple hundred years now, but that isn't, that don't mean shit to her. Like she's, she still feels a type of way and she feels even more of a type of way that he left her for, for Sookie. And I just, well, let's talk about Lorena real quick. Lorena is an interesting character as well, played by Mariana Claveno. 
Now, Lorena and Bill's relationship was never consensual. Let's put that on the table. He was got lost trying to come home from the the Civil War, which the South lost, obviously. So it's not like he was coming home to like blazes of glory, right? Trying to come home to his wife and his two children. He gets lost in the wood. He knocks on this cabin. This woman opens the door. And apparently, he's the first soldier who came through who didn't attempt to rape her. And so instead of killing him, like she did with all the others, she turned him against his will. And then she had her him with her um, where he, she brought him to look at his family home and, you know, check on his children before being her companion for the end of his days. And they were companions for centuries before he made it clear, like, if you don't release me, I'm going to kill myself because I'm unhappy. And so she released him literally to prevent him from committing suicide. And then hundreds of years later, he meets Suki, but Lorena's acting like Suki stole something from her. <laughs> Girl, <Right>. goodbye. <laughs> feel even though it puts Lorena and a lot of these other vampires in a bad light, this particular narrative, it just further serves to make the audience empathize with the Bill character, right? Right. Um, um, which is, I don't know how I feel. I feel like it's deeply manipulative. It's not like the Twilight vampires where, or the, the Buffy vampires where you need to feed in order, uh, to live. And when you feed, you're completely out of control. True blood goes above and beyond to show us that vampires can learn very quickly to control the way that they feed. Right. Right. So, like, what are you even telling us? Yeah, she made you a vampire without your consent, but you did spend centuries killing folks together, so... So, <laughs> clearly, like, so you weren't against, you know, like, sociopathy. Like, um, right. she, she, somehow she tagged that within you. Bill is, like, the worst type of person because he's, like, a person who, like, thinks he's a good person, but he's not actually a good person. Give me the Eric Northmans and the Damons any day who are, like, no, like, I suck. I know this. <laughs> like, right, right. I'm a shitty person. It is what it is. It is what um, it is. <laughs> and Eric is, like, your, he like he's, like, literally the incarnation of every white man if they were a vampire. Like, yeah, we're better than the humans. Yeah, I'm a vampire. You're a human. Sorry about it. I'm better than you. Like, and I've earned my position because I'm stronger and I can take whatever I want. He never tries to spin the situation like he's some oppressed minority or like he cares about humans or that humans and vampires are on the same, same wavelength. He's very aware of the power dynamics and the power imbalance and he revels in it. After Godric throws Lorena out, he, you know, offs himself, and that's so terrible. Okay, let me try that again. After he ends his 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 vamp vampiric life, it's just a great scene. We see Eric cry for like the first time, and he's like on his knees, like begging him not to go. And it's, I guess, it's instrumental in in deepening that character. It definitely humanizes the Eric character for sure because. The only relationship he has that's like deep and profound, other than this relationship with Godric, his father, his maker, is his relationship with Pam. And he's never tender with Pam in public places. Because again, he has to keep up that persona, right? Of unfuckwithable. <laughs> right. So he loves Pam deeply. 
and she is his only progeny, but he never shows his vulnerabilities with her the way that he has towards Godric. I also think it's a really interesting play on the vampire, just folklore and genre that in this series, vampires cry blood. Yeah, I love that part. I think it's really, really cool. Because, like, where are is the water for tears coming from? You, you're dead. <laughs> right. Uh, also, it's just, like, it's very visually striking. It's Visually, it looks so great. Right. So, it just makes the tears feel so much more real, don't you think? It does. It definitely adds, like, a, a punch. So let's return to this Tara, Eggs, and Marianne plot for a bit. Ah, uh, yes, Eggs. So Tara gets herself a real one, man. This man is gorgeous. He loves her. They have great conversation, great communication. Uh, Benedict Talley, a.k.a. Eggs, is played by McCad Brooks. If you guys need a visual reminder of how fine this man is. Um, <laughs> he is very good looking. Very good looking. They've both been taken in by Marianne. She, I guess she, they feel like she's just taken in wayward black folks. But she's got this agenda. Which should she's be got your agenda. first, honestly, it should be your first red flag. Like, see, that's why I didn't trust this bitch. That was my red flag. I was like, um, why is she championing these Negroes? I don't trust it. I know. Um, it's like, who is this rich white woman and why is she just giving me things? I'm, what's the catch? What's the catch here? <laughs> right. And when Eggs and Tara are first in Marianne's home, she treats them like royalty, not just like company, right? Like loyal, like royalty. It's, it's actually, it, it's so... Their life is so pleasant that it just makes me distrust her more because I'm waiting for that other shoe to drop, right? So Marianne is a maenad. The maenad is like a mythological creature. Like um, They were like the original servants of Dionysus. They invented hedonism, right? And this is how Marianne takes, slowly takes control of everyone at Bonton. She throws these incredible parties where this just like spirit of debauchery and revelry and hedonism and sex just takes over people, literally takes over them. We can see it in their eyes. Their eyes go all black. They get into these drunken orgies at her party. The town gets blackout drunk. Nobody remembers what the fuck happened the night before. All they know mm-hmm. is that they had a great time and that she's responsible. The more that they sort of uh, revel and party with her is the more that is the more power she gains. But it's also and it's also the more power they um, it's like it's the more like she creeps into them, uh, into their their psyche and their subconscious to take over the town. So the Marianne plot to me is weird. It's confusing for for a couple of reasons. I don't get why, and and part of it why it's confusing is that like I don't understand, um, in particular why she chooses Tara and Eggs in particular because they are the closest to her beyond um, this like uh, this other like white man servant that she has part of my confusion is that and i got this on the rewatch is that i didn't understand like what her end game was like and particularly when it came to like tara and eggs like because she shows up with eggs eggs is already at her house so he's it's clear that he's been with her for like a while now and then she chooses Tara, and I was like, so, like, what's the end game? Like, do they become Maynads, too, eventually? Because it's not like everybody is living at her home or that she invites everybody to live at her home. It's only 
certain people that are that close to her. So I was like, is that like her goal? Like, obviously she wants to sacrifice. Oh, and then the other part is like, she wants to sacrifice Sam to, mm-hmm. to Dionysus. So like, uh, I, I don't know. It was unclear. I have a few thoughts about this and this is cause I thought the plot was, I still think the plot is very confusing. Um, my whole thing with speculation is you definitely want to be thought provoking and to strike conversations within your viewers, but they should not be confused as to what's going on. Explanation I could come up with, and this is just sheer speculation, it's never explicitly stated, is that Suki was always endgame for Marianne. Um, Suki and Sam, particularly Sam, because of his shifting abilities. Um, and she needed an end to Sam, and Sarah was the Tara was the weakest link insofar as people around Sam because she had been working at Merlot's prior to this, and um, Eggs was supposed to be the bait to get Tara because I don't think Tara would have stayed if she had been alone with Marianne in her house. I think Eggs's presence and the fact that he's just such a good person and there was such a great chemistry between them made her feel comfortable with Marianne. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the best I can come up with that kind of makes sense and doesn't punch a bunch of holes into the existing narrative, but they never really spell this out for any of us. Yeah. It's very nebulous. Um, which is why I was like, so what's the the point? But anyway, the, the plot is, I guess, like in a higher sense in a, in a metaphorical sense is, um, in looking at it from a character's perspective is, is interesting. It's an interesting book and, to the relationship between Tara and her mother in the first season. So in the mm-hmm. first season, we sort of skipped over this, but um, there is a plot where Tara's, because Tara's mother is a violent alcoholic and abusive person. She's abusive even when she's not drunk, but when she's drunk, it's worse. And that's, her name is Letty May. Letty May in the first season cons Tara into paying $450 for an exorcism because she says, her alcoholism is the result of her being demonically possessed. I did think that in season two, this uh, Marianne plot with like Marianne actually possessing Tara felt like a really nice bookend to that. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say though, and I think this is interesting. um, I just want to point out, Letty Mae did get Tara to pay that money for the exorcism, but it actually wasn't a con. I mean, it might've been, but Letty Mae believed it so strongly that it worked. She never touched the bottle again. Right. That's true. Um, um, and that there's something to be said for now. I don't know if Miss, what's her name? It's Miss Miss Jeanette, played by Aisha Hines, had some real powers, but Tara runs into her later working at like the CVS or some pharmacy and becomes convinced that she's a, a, a fraud, right? But mm-hmm. whatever she did to Tara's mother stuck. Tara's mother was clean from, you know, no alcohol from that point onward. I was literally waiting every single season for Letty May to relapse, but she stayed on that wagon after that exorcism. So I think that's $450 well spent. (laughs) Right. And that's, I think uh, her character, when she catches her in the CBS, I I think that she makes that point. She's like, it worked though, didn't it? (laughs) But it is clever Aisha Hines' character does tell Tara that you have your own demons. Um, And then I guess that's fully manifested in season two when she's so easily susceptible to Marianne. Tara can't catch a break. (laughs) Let's talk more about Letty Mae, though. Like you said, Letty Mae was abusive. 
even when she wasn't drinking, right? Like psychologically and verbally, she was very abusive to Tara. This didn't get fixed when she stopped being an alcoholic, right? She was still hurting her daughter and not making up for previous hurts. I think part of the reason why Tara was so susceptible to Marianne is because Marianne gave her that sort of maternal energy that she never got from Letty Mae. Right, exactly. I mean, when... Tara first meets Marianne, a lot of the things that Marianne is saying to Tara makes sense. It's actually really good advice. Um, we meet a few other people in this season. We meet, in the last two episodes, we meet Sophie Anne Leclerc, played by Evan Rachel Wood. She's a vampire queen of Louisiana. Now, we talked about the hierarchies before. There are sheriffs, magistrates, and then kings or queens for each region. Hoyt, Jason's best friend, and Jessica start dating. She's still 17 years old, you guys, but apparently that doesn't matter now because she's a vampire. Um, his mom's not a fan. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to... Because, like, Hoyt and Jessica are literally the only saving grace in this series. I'm not, I'm not going to... I'm not going to sit here and lambast it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'm not going to judge it because, obviously, whatever they do is not nearly as bad as the way she's been violated in becoming a vampire, Hoyt is honestly a pretty decent first boyfriend. He is older than Jessica, but he's, as far as experience goes, are pretty much in the same boat. His relationship with his very toxic, overbearing, controlling mother has never allowed him to have a real relationship before. Right. Maxine Hoytenberry, played by Dale Raul, is such a fun character to watch, even at her worst. <laughs> <laughs> she is. She's really great. Another interesting thing that they do in this vampire universe is they finally answer that question. What happens if you're someone with a vagina and you get turned as a vampire when you're still a virgin? Oh, I know. That's so horrible. <laughs> that was that hurt me, like, personally. <laughs> right? Like, enter the never-ending hymen or the, the ever-healing hymen. This happens every time. Every single time Jessica has sex, her hymen breaks. Girl, who? But the cliffhanger of this season is that Bill proposes to Sookie and then she goes to the restroom to think about it and he gets kidnapped in the interim. Oh, and Sam kills Marianne. Yeah. That was a great like ending to that whole situation. But again, that whole, everything with Marianne was deeply confusing the more it went on. <laughs> right. So Marianne, like, try, she does, like, a, she basically plans, like, a, you know, ritual to, to sacrifice Sam. Sam shapeshifts into a bull, and Marianne thinks that it's Dionysus that's come. Yeah, reclaim her, uh, like, as, like, his servant or, like, whatever is supposed to happen. Mer and, like, he takes a horn and he just, like, kills her, and she's like, yes. If this is how it's supposed to be. And then Sam shapeshifts back into himself and then he just sort of rips out her heart. Which is black as tar, by the yeah, way. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> like her, her blood, her everything in her body is black. That's crazy. Another major thing that happens this season is that Jason kills eggs. He kills eggs thinking that he's protecting somebody, right? And then very quickly realizes that he just killed an innocent person. And then Andy covers up the murder. Tara literally just meant the love of her life in this man. She's never going to have a relationship as deep as the one she has with eggs, with anyone, right? It's terrible. It's terrible. It's horrible. Um, it's also particularly horrible because, like, nobody cares about Tara until, like, decide they want to. 
Right. Like, Suki's calling Tara her bestie, but doesn't even, like, do a check-in on old girl. Like, her world is about Eric and Bill's drama. Right. Like, her, that's everything. And Tara just has so much that she's, like, endured, and nobody really cares. Like, not even, like, Lafayette, which I don't, like, who, which they're, I mean, they're close. Um, which in some sense I don't really blame him for because he has a lot of his own stuff, but he's definitely, Lafayette's definitely in a, I think, a better place than Tara emotionally with regards to, I think, his life and and just what's going on. Like, and so it just sucks. I do want to point out, I don't think Tara has had an easier, or I don't think that Lafayette has had an easier life than Tara, but he is, the show pretty much puts it out immediately that he's much more, uh, emotionally strong and like mentally intact than Tara, right? Because they both had abusive moms and he's been through his shit and he's a gay black man in the South and he was like, went through that whole torture season one, right? We, we're not saying that Lafayette had it easy by any stretch of the imagination, but Tara needs something. She needs something emotionally that Eggs and, you know, in the beginning at least, Marianne gave to her. And now that's gone again. And her homies, her people, her, well, Tara and Lafayette are her, I mean, Suki and Lafayette are her people. But Suki's not even checking on her. Like, even Sam checks up on Tara more than Suki does. And the way, and like, and even then, Sam is just sort of, he, Sam checks up on Tara for the purpose of like, usually wanting to have sex with her. It's not like, oh, are you okay? Because, you know, are you okay? It's like, are you okay? Because I kind of like, wanna you know like (laughs) (laughs) he did continue the check-ins even when they stopped fucking though i'll give him credit for that you know but like in a really shallow way because then if suki needs something suki then becomes priority right right it's never like like, it's like he'll he checks up on tara but then like usually something is happening with suki and and then sam's like oh i've got to go save suki so like just whatever's happening with you, Tara, like, sorry, girl. <laughs> like, I will say that I enjoyed the fact that the show never tried to put Sam as a real love interest for Tara. Um, they were just fuck buddies and they were both aware of and okay with that situation, at least. Um, because, though, like you said, every time Suki needs something, he goes off r- running off. If, Sarah, if Tara had been emotionally invested in this man, that just would have been uglier. I don't know. I just feel for Tara. Like, no one... She, cause, and that's something, I guess that's, that's a sticking point, I think, in regards to the series, just, that's another sort of, um, temple, temple rubbing situation. I have to just rub my temples to like, really get through it mentally (laughs) because, um, I mean, Suki with all the things and sort of the drama that happens, you know, Suki is like, Suki is surrounded by nice white men who are going to come to her rescue. And the not so nice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like nice and not so nice white men who are going to come to her rescue physically and emotionally, physically and emotionally. Um, You know, if it's not Bill, it's going to be Jason. If it's not Jason, it's going to be Bill. If it's not Bill, it's going to be Eric. Um, And Eric is going to be all seed. (laughs) Right. If it's not Eric, it's going to be all seed. Like some, a nice white man is going to get off. And if it's not all seed, it's going to be Sam. Right. Right. Um, 
some nice white man is going to come and get in there and save her, even though she stays making her own trouble. Um, and if it's not any of those people, it's going to be the um, it's going to be Pam doing it on Eric's behalf, begrudgingly, but she's going to do it. But she's going to do it. And Tara doesn't get any of that support. Like, like none of it, man, manif- it does not manifest. Um she's... I think the only saving grace of the show is that Tara is not used, like, it's not a character that's used constantly to save or help Sookie, like the Bonnie Bennett character is. I have to think on that because I don't, I don't know that it's a silver lining. Like, it's because it's really hard, particularly as we're, like, you know, we're closing out season two, we're going to go into this third season. This third season is really... Like when I was rewatching, I was like, "Oh God, this!" I now I remember why I don't rewatch this show often because, <laughs> like, it's really hard to see Tara just like, like, just continuously traumatized and re-traumatized and re-traumatized, and there's nothing there for her. Like there is, right. no, like, there's nothing. There's no support. There's no even time that she gets to heal. She is just continue like. The show just, the shows and the writers just put her on this whipping post and they don't stop. And I don't know what to make of that. Like, I, because I think they, because the way that it feels um, from from a framing perspective is that it feels as if, like, there's is, isn't they're like isn't it so wonderful that this like black girl can just like in, endure all of this and it's and it's not it is so violent particularly mm. as we head into season three and and everything that will happen with um the James Frain character like oh god yeah I'm, I agree I don't think it's a silver lining that she wasn't like a handmaiden to Sookie I'm only saying that unfortunately. I have seen so much worse depictions of black girls, um, not to let these writers off the hook, but to sh- just to portray just how negatively, um, how badly and how painfully these black girl characters can often um, be written. Um, I think if if Tara had to deal with everything that she dealt with on the show, and in addition to that, had to be some sort of handmaiden to our protagonist, I don't think I would have been I would have been able to stomach rewatching it, honestly. Honestly mm. and truly, because mm. if you're going through all that suffering and then I have to labor for the, this white woman as well, it's just too much. It's too much. And she deals with more than her fair share of drama and trauma on this series. Pretty much everyone who isn't Lafayette directly or indirectly makes Tara suffer on this show. They do. They do. And and with that, let's let's close out season two and get into season three, because like. When I tell you I have some words about, like, I have I have a lot of feelings about, I have a lot of feelings. Because um, I'm I'm ready to, like, really rip Bill Compton and Silky, like, a new <laughs> one, like, for real in this season three. So, right. season two, where are you? I think season two is basic. And the reason I say it's basic is because of the Marianne plot. Like, the may not, okay, I mean, I guess it's a fantasy. It's a supernatural fantasy. You're going to put in some supernatural creatures. But, like, I'm confused. I I have confusion. Why? And how does she tie into the vampire narrative at all? Fair. I think that's fair. It's like I was watching two different shows in season two, and that's why I'm going to give it a basic. What about you? Um, I think it's good. Um, And I think maybe I think it's good because I I already knew, like, about 
main ads. Mm-hmm. So I kind of got it. There was, I think there was just like a lot that I liked. Um, I liked the sort of stuff happening with, um, with everything. I liked the, like once, I think I just started, I think in season two, I start to take the show for what it is. And it's, it's still good to me. I, I, there was enough, it made enough sense to me and I, it, where it was strong, it was super strong. So, like, I didn't hate it. Okay, yeah, that's fair. I can agree with that. Let's jump into season three. Oh, season, season three, bitch. <laughs> season three of True Blood was also 12 episodes. It picks up right where season two left off with Bill's kidnapping. Suki is searching for Bill. And we meet Alcide, who's, like, assigned to be, like, a protector to Suki by Eric. And Sam is getting to know his biological family, who are all shifters. He's got a mom, a dad, and a younger brother. And Jason basically used the fact that Andy covered up his murder of eggs to blackmail his way into becoming a cop. Look at white men failing upward. Love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> we also meet Suki's cousin, Hadley, who is a fairy. We actually technically met Hal- Hadley in season two. She was one of Sophie and Leclerc's consorts, but we didn't know her name or her relationship with Suki until season three. So let's get it. Let's talk about it. Right. So season three, our big bad of the season is uh, Russell Edgington, played by um, the extremely talented and illustrious Dennis O'Hare. You you guys, if you don't know his name, like when you see his face, you know who Dennis O'Hare is. Um, He has been in like everything. Russell Edgington is a chief example of what I was talking about when we we started this episode about how these vampires really don't give a fuck about humanity. They want to do as they please, as long as they stay under the radar of like detection, right. And bringing attention to yourself and vampires at large. Right. Mm-hmm. He's just been getting away with being trifling for centuries. He's nearly as old as Goderick is. And we find out in this later in the season that he killed, he killed Eric's biological parents um, and so that there's this, and he's been, he's had this, this beef, this vendetta caring against Roger Eddington for a really, really, really long time. This season, we, um, in addition to Evan Rachel Wood reprising her role as Sophie and Leclerc, we also meet, we also meet um, Lafayette's mother, Ruby Jean Reynolds, played by the incomparable Alfred Woodard. And Russell's also the one that, that kidnapped Bill. Mm-hmm. He he kidnapped Bill, and he's under the he kidnapped Bill on, on upon the request of Lorena, right? Mm-hmm. Because this bitch still don't know how to take no for an answer. I hated it. I was like, <laughs> "Why are you doing this?" Like, like that look- she she has such strong rapist energy. <laughs> I was just like, sweetheart, like you look so dumb right now. Like, what is this for? No means um, no, sweetie. Like, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. Kidnaps Bill and he's holding Bill at his home until Bill, you know, finally decides to love Lorena again or something. So you look so dumb right now. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> Standing <laughs> outside my house. Oh um, yeah. Apparently that's a thing that she thinks. Even with all her years, centuries of wisdom, she thinks that's a thing that you can do is like kidnap and uh, manipulate and force people into loving you. Okay, girl. In this time, there's this other character played by James Frain called... There's this Franklin character and he is a vampire 
also under the the payment, the work of Russell Edgington. Russell Edgington pays a lot of people. He develops, I don't want to say it's a relationship, he develops an obsession with Tara. He becomes obsessed with her to the point where he, where Tara realizes this situation is like not a good one. And then she tries to leave and then he wholesale just like starts to hold her hostage. Now, eventually through, you know, hijinks and wackiness ensuing, Tara ends up at Russell Edgington's home. She is, you know, wholesale, clearly in distress. And Bill walks in into the room where she's being held um, and he sees her. And what is Bill's reaction? He's like, eh. And then leaves. I think I interpreted that scene differently because I felt like he was trying not to make it clear that he knows her in order to protect her because he didn't want her to be used against him. At least that's how I saw it. Like, he didn't want these people who are holding him hostage to know that he knew her. He does not attempt, but he does not attempt to free her and he does not attempt to make some sort of action to get them all free until Sookie then is kidnapped and brought to the home as well. Right, right. I mean... I will say in his defense, he wasn't free himself, but like apparently any, any plans, any genius that was lurking in that brain of his didn't come to the forefront until Suki was there with them. Right. But but that's Um, what I'm saying. It's like, what do you (laughs) like? Yeah. It's really fucked up. It's, I'm, Um, it's not, I mean, I shout out to you for defending Bill Compton. Like you're really, and like, you're being very generous and gracious. I know I'm being generous because I know there's a very good chance that you're right. (laughs) He just doesn't give a fuck. (laughs) Like he, like, cause I mean, I, and I'm talking about it because it really made me hot. Like, this is when I was really like, fuck these writers. Like, seriously, fuck you. Like, I don't, like, I don't care. Like, I don't care if I meet you face to face. Like, um, like Alan, you know, Kate, Nancy, Alexander Wu, uh, Brian, fuck, fuck you. And if I see what's on site, like, <laughs> cause <laughs> the fact, cause it was really like crazy to me that like, this is a part like, cause, cause the show is so insistent on being like, Sarah and Suki are like such great friends. Like they're like sisters because, you know, she grew up in Grand's house and like they've always been there for each other. And like, you know, and if, and you know, Bill also doesn't, I mean, he is interested in Tara for this because he is interested in Suki. So you would think that if you see this woman, your this woman that you now want to be your wife, right? If you see your wife's sister, mm-hmm. right? Since that is the link, because that's the language of the show. They're like, mm-hmm. they are, Suki and Tara are like sisters. If you see your wife's sister being held freaking hostage and like she is human right so she mm-hmm. she is in a much more vulner- vulnerable position than you are who is a vampire you would do something you would do something and he's just like mm. yeah the whole situation was whack but i think the scene that really incensed me actually was when tara is who is being held hostage and being raped by franklin right 
Right. Um, finally managed to escape Franklin. She's in a white nightgown. And she is literally running across a, flan- a plantation with, with, with rabid dogs at her heels. Like, it is so, so, so slave era reminiscent. I want to vomit in my mouth. Oh, and then there's no, there's no anything. There's no, like, come up intense or resolution between the three of them when they all finally, like, leave or whatever. There's no, like, you saw me there and you did nothing. Like, they're all expected to just be like, oh, we're all friends. Like, I'd be like, bitch, no, we're not friends. Like, never again. Like, I don't ever want to see this. Like, like, if you do this, like, I, I will, I will torch, I will, I, I'm going to buy a flamethrower and I will torture boyfriend if I see him. Um, right. like, like, you know, I don't understand why more people didn't do this. Real power is silent. And most of these vampires are. And I don't understand how these domestic terrorists can be in the area. And people are not buying flamethrowers and rocket launchers. Or just busting your windows open during the day. Right. And then, and we'll talk about this more in season four. But after all this happens, like, Tara rightfully is like, I don't fuck with vampires anymore like i don't i don't want to do this like and the show does something that bond that that tbd does and that like then tara becomes the villain of the show somehow she is wrong (laughs) like they frame her as being like she is the one that is an antagonist and we'll talk about this more in season four when we cover the witch because that's essentially what happens is that like she joins the coven basically like are like, fuck these vampires, like for real, like seriously this time. Tara's, I think, at the forefront of that. And she is then made, she is framed by the show as like this, this horrible antagonist and, and being so wrong. But like your boyfriend let her be repeatedly raped and did not do anything to try to intervene. I mean, I want to point out, obviously, we all, we already know this. People are capable of, human beings are capable of raping and kidnapping and murdering each other. We understand that. But let's go back to what we said in the beginning of this episode. Power dynamics. Everything that happened to Tara at the hands of these vampires was made possible by their vampirism and the enhanced strength and speed and hearing And eyesight, blah, blah, blah. And wealth. Vampires have so much fucking money on this show. All of these advantages that it gave them over her and all these protections it gives them over her. She is absolutely right to despise vampires. They are literal predators. Any way you slice it. And I don't care if Sookie's in love with one. (laughs) I mean, first of all, can we talk about how the word werepanther really doesn't roll off the tongue at all? Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I could have called them wear cats or something. That's too many fucking syllables. Um. <laughs> we are introduced to the wear panthers in season three. We're introduced right. to them. Her name is Crystal. She's a wear panther, and that's a, a whole other thing. It's interesting because Jason's not a fairy. Um, he's not. He's not anything supernatural, but he attracts them like magnets. In season three, also, as I previously mentioned, Sam is getting to know his biological family. They're all shifters, and they're pretty much like white trash. They're dirt poor, um, even though they shouldn't because they're a fucking shifter. So rob a bank. Do something, girl. 
they're using his parents are using his younger brother in dog fights with actual dogs, by the way, like actual pit bulls. They get him to shift into one and then compete into these dog fights in order to earn the family an income, which is 50 layers of fucked up and abusive and sick and ridiculous. And he basically tells his brother, listen, I can't give you a perfect life, but I can give you a better life than this. Come with me. And his brother does that. Because Sam is adopted, by the way. We've learned that in like season one. And so I guess this was the first time he had an inclination to go and find his biological family. And what he found was far less than desirable, but at least he met people who were like him. Because um, it isn't until this season, after meeting his biological family, that he meets other shifters and he and and like realizes that that it's a whole bunch of them that are like this. Something else that we find out in this season is that Lafayette is like a medium, and not only that he's a medium, but he inherited this from his mother, right? Right. Um, when his mother started to suffer from dementia, it was difficult for people to tell the difference between her illness and her talking to the spirits, right? Especially since for most of her life, people just thought she had been crazy anyway. And the show alludes that part of his like internal struggle was the fact that he's always been like this and was always pushing away his abilities. But then he meets another, well, not a medium, but a witch, a brujo, uh, his mother's caretaker, Jesus, who kind of makes him feel comfortable opening himself up to his abilities. Another thing in season three. So remember how we talked about uh, True Blood Vampires Can't Go Out in Daylight thing sort of gets turned on its head. Well, mm-hmm. it gets it gets turned on its head this season. They realize that, or they have enough of Sookie's blood in their system that they can spend time out in the daylight at temper in, in temporary intervals. Right. So season three, we find out what Sookie is and why she can read minds. We find out that she's a fairy. And mm-hmm. it's not just her blood, it's any fairy's blood that will give them this little, you know, um, I, let's call it a day pass. This little vampire day pass. You can get it from draining any fairy. And in right. her case, she's only half fairy, but her blood will do the trick. It's interesting Because she didn't even know what she was. Her parents had never told her what she was, supposedly out of protection. But her cousin Hadley, Hadley always knew that she was a fairy. So it's interesting to me that Hadley's parents had told her the truth about herself, which ultimately made Hadley safer than Sookie. Because Sookie's ignorance of what she was is ultimately what puts her in in harm's way. Right. Another thing that we find out is that fairies... What really, what makes Slicky so special, I guess they finally, you know, cash in on this, is that people thought that fairies were extinct because people were under the assumption that vampires had drained them all. Because their blood has all these, like, daylight walking properties, and it's also, like, quote-unquote, like, the most delicious blood and vampires just, like, when they ended up feeding, like, just couldn't stop themselves. And then we meet, like, again, the Sookie character, she's not half fairy. She's, like, a quarter or an eighth fairy. But she, ha- unlike her brother, she has, like, the fairy powers. Um, but then we meet people with, like, stronger fairy blood um, later in the series, like Andy's daughters, who are half fairy, right? And they smell so good to vampires that they literally had to be locked in their house 
<laughs> so that they won't be drained. The fairies and vampires are something of an Achilles heel to each other, right? Again, made it makes more sense in the main ad plot. I'll give them that. And I really did like season three giving us more backstory on Sam and the shifters and kind of talking about that relationship between shifters and werewolves, which was interesting as well. Right, right, right. Uh, I love that. That was like really interesting. Three. So season three ends... Once Sookie gets there uh, to Russell Edgington's house, of course, now something needs to be done. And suddenly now everybody can finally pull it together to defeat Russell. Because there was no choice before, but the white woman is here. We got to save her, y'all. Girl, somebody <laughs> save this white lady. <laughs> we got to put on our fucking capes and save her. Um, messy. <laughs> but, uh... Russell is subdued uh, for the point. He he will pop back up again, but um, for now, he is subdued and he is weakened and then buried. Sookie is not feeling Bill. I mean, I guess it's the first sensible thing in her, her head. She's just sort of been like, you know, this isn't working out. So, yeah, we find out that, like, Bill, from all the way from first season, the meeting between Sookie and Bill was not by chance. Sophie Ann had found out that there was another fairy and that Sookie was the fairy. And he sent, and she sent Bill there to procure Sookie. So everything was just like fake. And so she is not like, she's not feeling, feeling it. Right. It doesn't matter if your feelings, his feelings for her are real because the foundation of their relationship is based on a lie. Now, Sophie Ann found out about Sookie through Sookie's cousin Hadley. Now, this is a turn that I actually really enjoy every single time I see it, because there's a million and one ways you can frame this. The last time I saw a turn like this was on Pretty Little Liars, right? When we, we found out that Ezra had known who Arya was and who all of Allison's friends were when he met her, right? Bill is a liar. Um, he ain't shit, and he will continue to reveal himself as ain't shit, particularly in the back, back half of this series. But... Um, we learned this truth and that she really can't trust Bill or a fucking word that comes out of this man's mouth in season three. Sookie, she runs away from Earth entirely. She goes to live in the fairy realm for a bit. And if she'd known what was good for her, she should have stayed there. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Like, what, what did you come back for? Jason's fine-ish, at least for now. For now. Um, you didn't care about Tara and Lafayette that much or Arlene that much anyway. So they ain't gonna miss you. They'll be fine. They got each other. Lafayette and Arlene always had each other's backs anyway. They're gonna be fine without you, girl. And then Tara leaves town, which good for her. <laughs> like Long overdue. And that's how we end season three. I want to give season three a good. I think, you know, that whole messy Maynard plot of season two was really distracting. The show felt cohesive again in season three. So I'm going to give it a good. What about you? I think that as much as I hate the stuff, I think season three is really strong. So I'm going to give it a solid good. That turn, the turn with Bill and Sookie saves it, honestly. Uh, I think that turn does a lot of heavy lifting. We get to learn more about Terry. Terry is another character played by the actor who was Zach on Gilmore Girls. He's so he's another character on the show that's so pure. And literally until you said he was Zach on Gilmore Girls, I hadn't recognized him. Oh wow, really? Yeah, I mean the Terry character is worlds away from Zach. So I just did not recognize him as the same person until you just said it right now. 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's what I was like, oh, it's Zach from Gilmore Girls. But like, but like you said, he's so different. And he's, I mean, beyond the fact that he looks so much older, but like, he's so pure. Like, I don't know how else to describe Terry. Todd uh, Lowe does a great job with Terry Belfler. I have to, I have to give this man a round of applause because he encompasses all the things that are like, good about Terry, but also things that are broken about Terry. And like I said, I don't recognize him, even though like looking back, he does sound like Zach and he looks like Zach, but yeah, I mean, he, he encompasses everything that's, that's beautiful and, and, and broken. And in this season, he, they've been developing his character and and the romance between him and Arlene throughout the seasons. But this is when like, you know, they, Arlene and Terry get married and they are getting ready to have a baby and Terry's really working on fixing himself and, or trying to be as, as fi- fixed as he can be uh, because he su- suffers greatly from um, PTSD from his time in uh, Iraq. We get to see a lot more of that develop in season three. And, and I love that those two characters, Hoyt and Jessica and Arlene and, and Terry, not necessarily Arlene, but, but Terry, provide so much emotional resonance with the plots that they bring that so when all this other when all these other elements and stuff with Bill and Sookie and Lafayette and whatever get spin completely you know into the stratosphere those characters really help to reground this show into to feeling something deeper I will still give season three a basic plus (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah um i get it i get it absolutely um but i definitely think like the first half of this series does something that the back half unfortunately fails to do and we'll talk more about that next week There you have it, folks. This is everything that we think made the first three seasons of True Blood good, bad, basic, and deliciously fun. If you'd like to check out the series, True Blood is currently streaming on HBO Max. Please let us know your thoughts on this series via our Twitter or Instagram. If you're a GBB patron on our top two tiers, be sure to check out our True Blood Spotify playlist. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Good, The Bad, The Basic, be sure to share it with your friends. Tune in next week when we'll be concluding our true blood discussion by delving into those last four seasons of this television juggernaut. Follow The Good, The Bad, The Basic on all major podcast platforms to listen to all of our regular weekly episodes on the go. Leave us a review on your preferred platform and share our weekly episodes on your social media. Please follow us at The Good Bad Basic on Twitter and at Good Bad Basic Pod on Instagram to get in on our daily content. Also, be sure to follow our SoundCloud page, The Good, The Bad, The Basic. If you love this sort of content and want more, become a show producer and patron on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash goodbadbasic. Your support allows us to keep bringing you our regular weekly episodes as well as exclusive bonus material. Until next time, bye everyone.